This podcast is funded by Ted Dintersmith, the executive producer of the acclaimed film Most Likely to Succeed, and the author of the best-selling book What School Could Be. I'm Josh Rapoon, and this is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. My thanks to you, series listeners. You are in 40 countries, and you have supported this podcast in ways I could not have imagined more than a year ago when we started the series. Thank you for listening to our stories of education, innovation, imagination, and creativity from across the Hawaiian Islands. We promise to keep delivering the goods, even in the middle of this COVID-19 pandemic. In the last episode, I talked with Ululani Shiraishi, a Kamehameha School's Maui campus ELA teacher leader. My guest today is Kavika Kekoa Pegram, a recent graduate of Waipahu High School, now matriculating at American University in Washington, D.C. He is a member of the Youth Commission for the State of Hawaii. He is also the Executive Director of the Hawaii Youth Climate Coalition and a youth activist for the United States Youth Climate Strike. Kavika has written articles on climate change for both the Honolulu Star Advertiser and Hawaii Business Magazine. He has been especially active in the lead up to local and national elections here in the fall of 2020. Kavika is one of more than 60 student leaders who have stepped up to lead climate strikes in cities and towns across the country in 2019 and 2020 as part of a global school strike for climate action modeled after the example of Swedish climate activist Greta Thunberg. He was inspired to become a leader for climate action after East Island, a small and unpopulated island in the French frigate Shoals, was swallowed up by the sea after a hurricane last fall. He has forged contacts with the Hawaii chapters of organizations like 350.org and the Sierra Club, as well as progressive political groups like Our Revolution and the Progressive Movement of Hawaii. Pegram's role in the movement involves creating messaging, working directly with student government groups across Hawaii to get youth on board, and gathering support from elected officials like Hawaii Senator Maisie Hirono. And now, here is my conversation with Kavika Kekoa Pegram. Kavika, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. So, Kavika, um, my format is to, you know, throw a bunch of questions at you and you just knock them out of the park. Um, so let's jump into the first question here. So back in the early 90s, I was privileged to hear Carl Sagan, the great American astronomer, planetary scientist and cosmologist, speak at a public event in Iowa where I was going to school, I was getting my undergrad. And the title of his talk was actually a question. And the question was, is there intelligent life down there? And so in his talk, he, he posed himself as an alien from outer space, spending time circling planet Earth and on planet Earth, seeking answers to that very question. So I'm going to hit you with that question right out of the gate here. So um, high above Earth, Kavika, you, you circle our planet. And you're contemplating that question. So 
Is there intelligent life here on Earth, Kavika? What do you think? Um, well, you know, after listening to the and working on the U.S. elections, I don't think there is intelligent life on Earth. Mm. Um, <laughs> Go for it. Uh, Tell me. Yeah, why. no, I, I, well, you know, I, I think that. I, I think that there is intelligent life on Earth, and I think that there is. Uh, um, I think there are, you know, by by the definition that, you know, um, the theorists use for intelligent life. I mean, we, we do fit the definition of it. Um, we can think. We have civilizations. Uh, we coordinate with each other. Um, we theorize. Uh, we hypothesize. You know, we do all these cool things. Um, it, it's just we. But at the same time, you know, I, I feel like just as, as people, we're so primitive. Um, we rely so much on on our emotions to get points across. And um, when I was talking about the U.S. elections, I mean, you know, you saw how that went down. It was just a lot of a lot of misinformation, purposeful disinformation uh, that that went through. Um, and it was just a, a lot of, of fear that were in voters' eyes because they were scared of being able to vote safely. Um, and, you know, I think anybody could say that, that that wasn't an intelligently done election and it wasn't a properly done election. Um, mm. so, that, so that's where that comment came from. But, yeah, I would say, you know, the, the world as a whole is, is, is very intelligent. And, you know, we, we have something that we've never seen on any other mm. um, planet before. You know, what happened that night when Carl Sagan was speaking to this audience in Iowa, at University of Iowa, was, you know, his answer was a resounding no. Um, and it was kind of stunning for the audience, actually. And I think part of his focus had to do with the way that we treat the planet, because, of, of course, that was you know something that he really cared about. Um, but it was a nuanced conversation about all the things that we humans do on planet Earth and, you know, ways that we act intelligently or not so intelligently. And so, you know, you're talking about what happened during this election, maybe even in a, in a broader context, looking at the ways that we are as a culture here in this country, and maybe even Kavika here in this state, you know, what, what are some of, what are some of the areas that you think where we're actually acting very intelligently and what are some areas where we're not? Well, um, looking in the context of, of, of climate change and, and, you know, environmentalism and how we treat the world around us. Um, yeah, you know, it would be, it would be fair to say that we're not thinking very intelligently because we're essentially creating our, our own destruction. Um, but at the same time, uh, there are a lot of individuals and a lot of people that are working really hard day and night to ensure that we have a livable and sustainable future. Mm -hmm. Um, but at the end of the day, we are bound by the systems that we created. Um, so it's kind of like the human species shot themselves in the foot. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, I, I think that at, at the state level, I mean, you have amazing institutions like the office of climate change, sustainability and resiliency that have been doing amazing work outlining, um, you know, goals to be able to live a more sustainable future that have been bringing community leaders and, and community activists into the conversation to outline these goals. Um, and I, I think they've been a really big pillar of, uh, you know, a part of the system that has been doing amazing work um, and, and are working, you know, hopefully to, 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 go back on some of the mistakes that we've made as a state, as a country, and as, as a, as a uh, species. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So 
You know, you're going to find that I have a tendency to come at things from a lot of different angles. So I'm going to come at this from a slightly different angle. Um, you and I have both read Yuval Noah Harari's book, Sapiens. And Harari's book explains briefly here that money is the most pluralistic system of mutual trust ever devised and that capitalism is the most successful religion ever invented and that the treatment of animals in modern agriculture is probably the worst crime in history. And finally, that even though we are far more powerful than our ancient ancestors, we are much happier. So Kavigo, what what are your thoughts about, and I know I realize this is a huge question, but about money and capitalism and modern agriculture and happiness? Like, where's your brain on all of that right now? Yeah, um, well, it's been a while since I read the book, um, but, uh, you know, I when as I was thinking about all those statements um, that the book was trying to come out with within different chapters throughout it, it was, um, especially towards the end where it talked about, you know, what does happiness really mean? How do we define happiness? And are we happier now than we are um, back in, you know, the, the medieval ages or even before that? Um, and, you know, to an extent, I agree with the book where the book kind of essentially just is like, Eh, probably not um, because, you know, the, the freedom of choice that we have today um, may seem like it'd be less limiting and, and thus make people more happy because they can choose what they want to do with their lives versus back then where you're kind of subjected to mm. doing one thing your entire life and living a certain way your entire life. And um, but, but, you know, I mean, the book says like that could make people happier um, just because of the, the way they lived and it was just easier to, to live life. Um, but I think, again, it always comes down to how we define happiness and in, in this society and in the society we live in, the economic modalities, capitalism, is that, does that make us happier? Um, and, and my answer is not necessarily. Um, but I also know that we have kind of put ourselves kind of as a species, I'm thinking, you know, totality, not individuals, but we have developed this system for ourselves um, and we, we we're living through it. And this is a result of, you know, thousands of years of civilization that came to this point. Um, and, and so this is what we have to live with. And, you know, we have to figure out how are we going to collectively go into mm. a system that would make all of us happy. Mm. Um, I don't think that system exists. Um, I don't think you know, just because people are happier back then that we should go back to that system just because people are less happy right now that we should um, absolutely change everything. Mm. Um, and, and so, you know, what I'm curious to find out is, is where, you know, where, where is that good middle ground where people have the individual liberties uh, that we have today, but also have, you know, some kind of uh, structure in the world where people are able to live their lives without worrying about certain aspects. Mm. Um, and yeah, I, I spent a lot of time kind of figuring out where that balance is, uh, especially in the context of, you know, communism versus capitalism. Um, and, you know, what kind of choice we have uh, in either system. And mm. mm-hmm. will, will that amount of choices make us happier or less happy? 
Right. And so much of that depends on who we are as individual human beings in terms of how all of that is going to work itself out. So, so again, kind of coming at it from a different angle. And I've been waiting to ask someone on this podcast this question. Um, and you're the first one where I figured this is where I want to ask it. You know, my dad was a he was a family physician for about 60 years on Lanai and Molokai and in Kaneohe, um, where I grew up. And he had a plaque above his office door that said, man is no damn good. And we used to joke about it all the time at family dinners and stuff because that plaque was so prominent. But, you know, given he served his community as a phys- physician for 60 years, I always thought his sentiment to be pretty remarkable. Um, so what are your thoughts? What are your thoughts about the nature of man and the extent to which we can actually be good or not good? <laughs> you know, these, these large philosophical questions, I think, always kind of comes down to how do we define good and not good. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I mean, if we're thinking, you know, good is having everybody always serve the community and having everybody always mm-hmm. give back the amount that they take, right? Yeah. Then man is not good. Man, man is selfish. Man is bad. Um, but at the same time, uh, we also have to realize that, right, you know, well, how can we also ensure that the people who can't give as much as they'd like to society for as much as they take, right, because of, you know, uh, because of situations that have, have led them to be unable to do that mm. um, and because of, uh, you know, maybe disability um, inability uh, to, to give back to the same amount, right? Are, are they bad people? No. Um, and so, you know, to reframe the question, I think is, is, is more important in figuring out is, is society as a whole good to its individuals mm. rather than are its individuals good to its society? Um, and I would say also no. <laughs> um, but I, I don't think that it's, it's out of the realm of possibility for, uh, you know, society as a whole to, to start being able to do that. Mm. Um, I guess that's kind of where I stand on that. Mm -hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one more angle to this question, Kavika, um, Sapiens, Harari's book, Sapiens takes a very unusual multidisciplinary approach, meaning he weaves history, biology, philosophy, and economics together to make the argument that he's making. And yet, I would bet my wallet that your education at Waipahu High School happened mostly in subject silos, where you moved discreetly between biology and philosophy and economics and and music, et cetera, right? Um, so mm-hmm. what what are your what are your thoughts about that, about the the siloed approach, the way that you went through your education and versus you know that multidisciplinary approach that seems to yield something different? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Um, not just as a platitude for me, like making a stall so I can think about it, but that's like a really good question. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah. Uh, well, you know, I, benefits and drawbacks, right? I mean, you know, you also have to realize, we also have to realize that uh, the way that we think about philosophy is, is fundamentally less fact-based than the way we think about biology. Um, uh but that doesn't mean that philosophy is any less valuable, right? Um, mm-hmm. and, and so, to an extent, that you know, keeping these subject areas separate and keeping the the thought processes behind them a little bit separate um, 
helps, but I also think that the the interdisciplinary approach and you know the multimodal approach that the book takes on, I think, was extremely beneficial to kind of understanding the context of our history um, more fully than if we just studied it. Uh, you know, from a fact-based historical perspective, right? It's also understanding how do people feel, how do people, you know, think. Uh, what was the science at the time, and what does the science now tell us about that time? And I, th I think that was really valuable. Um, as far as my education at Wapahu and, and and how it was able to kind of, and and you know where the differences are, I, I think I was pretty lucky at Wapahu that I was able to do all these different extracurriculars that kind of helped blend what I was learning in class in real life. Um, and that was mock trial, of which I was president of for three years. And um, the new, the newspaper at the school, Kane Tassel, um, where I was able to kind of blend all the things I was learning, um, whether they be things I was learning outside of school and podcasts and philosophy podcasts and things I was learning in class, history, biology, and um, being able to kind of write stories and tell stories in mock trial um, about all these different things and figuring out how to make the best story possible. Mm. Uh, and I think that, you know, that's been kind of really, really helpful. Yeah, it seems like for you, that's a marvelous experience because you're getting both. You're getting the individual subject areas and the opportunity to weave them together um, in the extracurricular work that you're doing. I think my concern, Kavika, is that for students who don't do that extracurricular work or who are doing it, you know, sort of just to discreetly check off some boxes for a college you know, um, resume that they will have marched through separate subjects and don't fully understand the way that the world is a multidisciplinary world where everything is sort of woven together. Does that make sense? No, yeah, and I, I agree with you. Um, and I think that, you know, I, I look through a lot of life um, with an equity lens and figuring out, you know, and, and so extracurriculars are, are a really hard part of education because not everybody has access to you know, to the time and money it takes to be part of an extracurricular. Yeah, right. Um, right. And, and so you have working class families that make their kids work the second they turn 15 when it's legal. Yeah. Uh, the second they turn 15. And so right after school, they got to head to work or sometimes they'll even, you know, drop out of school, work all day, do their GED at night or even not even complete high school. Right. Um, and, and yeah. And, and so from that perspective, absolutely. I mean, you know, it, 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 it it's hard to get a full education um, when this, the material conditions of your life deny your ability to do that. Um, and it's, mm -hmm. <laughs> it's depressing. Um, mm -hmm. and yeah. And, and so in that case, absolutely. I, you know, that, the siloing of education and the way we go about it just isn't, isn't enough, I think, in my opinion. Yeah. And I think that's part of the work that I'm trying to do here over the last bunch of year, years is to, and, and especially in, within the lens of equity, um, where kids don't have that opportunity, that they will, through the course of their middle school and high school experience, be able to at least once or a couple of times experience the multidisciplinary approach so that they're aware that it exists and they understand, you know, the magic of it when you really start to do that. Um, so, yeah. So, okay. So shifting just slightly, Kavika, in a, in a different direction. Um, and again, we're, I know I'm coming out of the gate with a bunch of sort of big philosophical questions here, but last spring, I read a wonderful book by a guy named David Epstein, uh, journalist, uh, titled Range. And in it, Epstein examined the world's most successful athletes, artists, musicians, inventors, forecasters, scientists, 
And he discovered that in most fields, Kavika, especially for those that are those fields that are complex and unpredictable, generalists, not specialists, are primed to excel. So generalists often find their path late and they struggle they, they juggle many interests and they fail often. Um, and they quit things frequently rather than focusing on one thing and being very, very good at that one thing. So that makes it tends to make them more creative, more agile, more able to make connections uh, that their specialized peers can't see. So in the in the context of how you were educated at Waipahu High School, like what are your thoughts about generalists versus specialists and and how we educate young people? I think that's the truth. Um, <laughs> Waipahu is is very specialist centered, um, yeah. just as a school. It's just the way the, the they do it there. It's you have academies, right? Um, and those academies take on a a, a general field, so like a a, a special like a specialist, but like a, the the overall field around that. So, law and justice, um, healthcare, uh, healthcare, farming, um, and then engineering. Mm-hmm. And I was in the law and justice. Academy, which kind of explains a lot now that I think about it. Uh, <laughs> right. But the the Law and Justice Academy, um, it, it's extremely specialized because it's it's really aimed towards police officers and lawyers, and the Health Academy is aimed towards mm-hmm. um, mostly nurses, probably sometimes doctors, a lot of scientists, um, and then engineering is uh, engineers. <laughs> right. Uh, and, and you know there there are it's not. Maybe it's not the perfect system, I think, for, for a generalist. But I, I do think that, you know, in, in, in the context of trying to find your path, I think it's actually a really good way to go about it. Right. Um, because, you know, I think it's, it's best to, as, as if you were a generalist and you're trying to find, you know, where you fit in the best, it's best to kind of, you know, find something broad but specific that you maybe kind of are into. Um, and then when you realize that it's absolutely horrid and you hate it, then Wapalo lets you switch to another pathway as mm-hmm. another academy. And then when you go to college and you have your third chance versus if you went to a general high school where you kind of learn just your math, your science, your history, um, you got your degree and then you go to college to finally figure out what you want to specialize in. And then you realize, oh, I hate this. And you spent several thousand dollars, mm. um, you know, kind of taking those specialized classes. Um, I, I think that Waipalo gives you a pretty unique opportunity to explore those different interests that you have rather than kind of subjugate you to one specific, you know, interest early on in your life for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. So for you, Kavika, what are you, what are you thinking about right now in terms of, you know, your journey and whether you're specializing or whether you're generalizing, like where are you, where are you at in your head and your heart? about that right now? Do you feel like you're headed in a more specialized direction with your, the work that you're doing? Or, or do you feel like you're actually having a generalized experience? Um, well, I'm, I'm a community organizer. Um, I actually just landed back in, you know, from Nevada doing some campaign work for Unite Here. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, the work that I do is, is, <laughs> is everything. Um, and I, I think that that's the really cool thing about um, working within this, you know, big legislative system, um, whether it's national or local um, or statewide, is you work on so many different issues that affect so many different people that you have to learn so much about so many different things. 
Um, I mean, you know, for example, uh, I was helping put this march together yesterday, um, and we did a march uh, from Ala Moana Beach Park to the Capitol. Mm-hmm. Or not, sorry, to Honolulu Hale. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this march was about creating a people's budget so people could choose how much money they want allocated towards certain things. It was also about setting Green New Deal, which has to do with not only, you know, economics, but it also has to do with, with you know, science. What does the science tell you about climate change? We have to do Medicare for all. What does what are doctors telling you about the needs of their patients, you know? Um, and how are we going to be able to provide the funding for that? It's so many different things kind of packed into this idea that it's just law and that you're only working on law, but you're also working on real life issues uh, that are so broad in scope that, I mean, it, it, you can't be a specialist and, and mm. you know, be focused on all these different aspects of, of life. Which actually kind of circles us back to a comment you made earlier, which is that if mankind more than less is focused on making a contribution to his or her community, that by definition means you're going to have to be pretty general because you have to understand your community and communities are not specialized, they're generalized. You have to know a lot about what's happening in your community across across so many things, right? For sure. Um, but that's also not to say that specialized, you know, people you specialize in particular subjects for their entire life aren't valuable too. Yeah. Um, we, we need, we need, you know, we need heart surgeons. Uh, we, we need people that know all the ins and outs of pharmaceuticals and we need people that, uh, know how the economy works, you know, everything from, from macro to microeconomics and, um, yeah. I, I, yeah. And so for sure, but uh, you know, it's also important to understand that, you know, people, um, and societies require more than one thing from any one individual. Um, and that's where that comes in. Right, right. That's awesome. Hey, everybody, let's take a minute to reintroduce today's guest. Kavika Kekoa Pegram is a graduate of Waipahu High School and is currently matriculating at American University. He is active in a variety of causes related to social justice and the climate change crisis. So, Kavika, um, I want to focus now a little bit more on the work, this specifically on the work that you're doing. So John Schwartz, a writer for the New York Times, sent out a newsletter that included a section about your work organizing a 400-person march focused on climate change um, in Honolulu in March 2019, if I have that right, which is part of a larger global series of protests associated with Greta Thunberg, the young Swedish woman credited with inspiring the movement. And I would love to focus, Kavika, on the moment when you were offered the opportunity to lead this march in Hawaii. So my question is, what in that moment gave you the confidence to say, yes, I'm going to do this. I'm going to take this on. Yeah. So the the story, um, the way it started was uh, I was scrolling on Twitter. Um, and you know, like any current sitting president on a Sunday afternoon, you know, I was, I was looking at all these tweets and, mm-hmm. um, I was, I saw this tweet from David Hogg, who was the March for Our Lives guy. And at the time I really liked this guy and I really respected him and his work. And, um, he was kind of like the introducee to thousands of, of now organizers and activists that, that young people can get involved in. Um, uh, anyway, so he tweeted about, you know, if we can walk out from school for gun violence, why can't we do it for climate change? Link to an article 
about this, you know, the series of global events that were happening on March 15th um, and who's organizing each country. Uh, and so one of the people that or one of the people that were organizing for the U.S. was a person named Isra Hersi, mm-hmm. um, who happens to be the daughter of Ilhan Omar. Mm. Um, and so I emailed her and we got to talking and she's like, do you want to lead one in, in your state? And I was, um, at the time I, I had never been to a protest, um, much less organized one. Um, I, I didn't, I, I barely knew how the government worked and I was like, okay. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, and that was because I understood like the, the gravity of, of, of the issue of, of climate change, you know, mm. from the Philippines and, um, we get more storms than you know most places on earth do in in, in years in one year um and and you know i I'd seen my community get flooded and and all these different things and i I was like this you know this is an important issue um I'm not the most qualified to learn about this issue, but you know I'll figure it out as I go mm-hmm. um which is kind of a stupid idea thinking about it now um I would never do that now um but I did back then and i, I don't know why um and, and, you know, I started reaching out to a bunch of people that actually knew what they were doing, particularly it was 350.org in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Um, Dave and, 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 and Sherry Monix, who have, have really taught me, you know, what it means to be an organizer and, and how to go about that. And, um, and they, they really were, were the backbone of helping me put it together. Um, and we were able to do it. And my first protest I organized, we got around 300 people. Um, and that was, it was just a really great experience. Mm. So what were some of the most difficult challenges you faced while organizing that march? Um, the hardest part was legitimizing it to myself. And, you know, I thought about this a lot, actually. Mm. Yeah, it was, it, was, it was figuring out, okay, um, right now, as of this moment, right before I sent my first email, I could just tell Isra, um, not, you know what, I'm busy, I can't do it. Um, and so I was really, I was really terrified. Uh, and sending out the first email to the first organization, mm. and then eventually sending the first press release to the first journalist, that was when it became like, okay, I can't back out now. Mm. If it's just my mom and me at that protest, uh, that'd be kind of embarrassing. Um, and I genuinely felt like until about the day before, I genuinely felt that like it was just going to be just my mom and me, and maybe Dave and Cherry. I, that's all I felt. Um, and, and so it was, it was figuring out, okay, you have to commit at this point or you have to back out um, for me. And it's it like, okay, at this point, let's just get it. Mm-hmm. Um, and we did. Uh, um, and then the event happened and um, news media covered it and then it kind of legitimized itself uh, mm. after the event happened, which was interesting. Mm. And what were, uh, yeah. what, what were some of the logistical challenges, you know, the really gnarly ones that you faced? Um, figuring out how to do a permit was really hard. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, which, uh, and, and this is true. I've, I've worked with a ton of first-time organizers ever since that event, kind of helping them along the way, just like Dave and Sherry have helped me. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's always the permitting. It's always the permitting process, which I actually think um, is a First Amendment issue. Uh, but regardless... Um, the permitting process was was just insane because one, they're not clear about where you go to get a permit. Is it a state level issue? Is it a city level issue? Um, and then which property is this on? So who do you go to for the permit? How do you fill out the permit? How do you determine how many people are going to come to this protest for the permit um, requirement? It, it asks how many people do you expect? 
with protests, you never know how many people are going to be there specifically. Mm-hmm. And it asked for that. Um, it asked for, you know, it asked for the address of, of it asked for an address. And so if you're just like a first time organizer who's organizing on their own without an organization, you don't have an address. You have to put your home address on there and then you have to display that permit publicly. Mm-hmm. It's, it's all these different things. Um, mm-hmm. Well, legally, you have to. A lot of people don't. But it's all these different things um, that just make it really hard for first timers to figure it out. And I had to figure it out on my own. Um, and so, yeah. And, and if it weren't for Dave and Sherry's help, I would never figure it out. But hmm. and how does how does that amount to a First Amendment issue in your mind? Well, I think that um, one, the permit application is in English again. Equity issues. If you're mm-hmm. if you're a Spanish speaking, you know, um, if you're a Spanish speaking person, right? Or if you only speak Ilocano, or you only speak Tagalog, and you want to put together a protest and you want to put it on the lawn of Honolulu Hale, mm-hmm. you need a permit. And the entire process is all in English. How is that equitable? Um, and because we don't have an official language in the United States. So you're free to speak any language, but the permitting process is all in one. Mm. Um, the other issue is that it is difficult for people to, to do. Um, and that you, have, you, you require the government's approval to disprove of the government's actions. Um, which I think just as a principle is wrong. Um, and, you know... I think yeah, the biggest part of it is just requiring government's approval uh, to mm-hmm. disprove their actions. I think that is is yeah the most insane part of the permit, permitting thing to me. In other states, they charge you money to get a permit, um, which is another level. Thank God Hawaii was actually sued on that, and mm-hmm. so now all permit permitting applications are free. So that's mm-hmm. that's one really good thing. That's super interesting, Kavika. I was having a conversation with some educators the other day, and we were talking about how kids in school need to be more than just problem solvers. They need to be problem seekers. They need to find, be able to find, become skilled at finding problems. And you found a problem. And I wonder that someone else who hears this might go, hmm, okay, that's a problem I could work on. Let's figure out how we can better the permitting system. Um, That's super interesting. So, you know, slight change in direction, but focused on you um, in an article, which by the way, you thank you for sharing what you shared with me on your your LinkedIn page, because um, I found a treasure trove of stuff there. Um, in an article about your climate work by Nina Wu in the Honolulu Star Advertiser, just over a year ago, she noted that, and I quote, the youth are asking Governor David Ige to declare a statewide climate emergency and to establish a climate curriculum for Hawaii schools. So I would, I would love to know more about this idea to create a climate curriculum. Like, where did the idea come from? Who moved it forward? What were some of the ways that young people involved wanted our educators and education leaders to teach climate change? Yeah. Um, so again, this kind of goes into a little bit of our conversation earlier about being a generalist or a specialist. Um, climate change is such a broad issue, uh, such a... Uh, it, it is such a massive issue that affects all different subject areas that you learn in school. It affects your history. How is ExxonMobil lied to, to people um, you know, throughout, throughout uh, the 1970s and 1980s going on forward into tricking people about what the actual reality of climate change was? That's history. Uh, it teaches you about science, you know, carbon in the air. How does that work? How does that actually make the globe hotter? It teaches you, um, you, know, it teaches you all of these different things, all these different um, specialties. And really, I think what we were trying to do with that was we were really trying to get um, 
by the way, it wasn't successful. We never got it. Um, but mm-hmm. uh, we were really we were trying to kind of em- emphasize this idea that climate change is not a one-off issue, that it's not a special issue, that it affects all of us, and it affects all of us in many different ways. Um, and there was somebody that already had a, a DOE-approved climate curriculum that just wasn't being used. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't recall her name at the moment, but I can get it back to you after the interview. Um, but we really wanted basically to take the work that she had already done um, and implement it into the schools. Um, and I, you know, I had really thought that this would be something that would be really awesome because it would get a lot more people involved in, in the movement um, because they would understand the urgency of, of the next uh, now less than nine years before 2030. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, And, you know, one of the, Kavika, one of the interesting things about curriculums is, and you can imagine if you were in the DOE, is that, uh, you know, every week there's somebody who says, I have a curriculum and I want the DOE to adopt it. You know, it could be computer literacy or it could be climate change, whatever it is. And after a while, it starts to feel like an avalanche of, you know, of suggestions, if you will, from the community to cover this, that, and the other. the other, But climate change seems different to me because climate change, as you described, is so huge and has so many facets to it in terms of how you can, you know, come at it. So it seems like it's, and, and also it's a freight train coming at us uh, as a human species. So, you know, m- maybe, maybe there is merit in saying every kid in our public schools, and I'll include charter and private schools as well, they really need to touch base with climate change at some point in their education career, right? I mean, they, it just, that imperative feels very real to me. Yeah. And, you know, the reality is that they don't at the moment. Yeah. Um, I, I did a, a panel um, in front of uh, high school students, both private and, and um, private, not charter and, and public um, and it was a panel on activism and education. I was talking about the climate change stuff that I did. And um, the big thing at the end of it, I, I had them raise their hand. You know, raise your hand if you like had a really, you know, in-depth, thorough lesson on what climate change was. Mm-hmm. Um, there were about, I think, f- 12 to 15 students there. One person raised their hand. Right. Um, right. And, and that's like insane to me because this is, as you said, it is a freight train coming at us, you know, at 150,000 miles an hour. Um, and it, it, it'd be like talk, it'd be like, you know, a huge natural disaster happening and no one in the news reporting it, it is, is what it feels like. Right. Right. And it means that 11 of those 12 kids probably won't have an opportunity to actually be part of the solution because they've never been exposed to the problem. Um, exactly. that's what, that's, what's pretty scary. Follow up question to this. I want to talk about the green new deal for a minute. Um, this was talked about in a Fast Company article, again, on your LinkedIn page, which was super interesting. Um, and I was describing your organizing work. So I, I know your work is global, but what, what is the Green New Deal that we need in Hawaii, Kavika? Yeah, well, you know, to give some context um, to the viewers, the Green New Deal is a national um, resolution being put before Congress by uh, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez though it wasn't invented by heroes, it was invented by the Green Party. Um, and it outlines a lot of different solutions, economic solutions, um, figuring that out, a jobs guarantee, housing guarantee, um, you know, a food program, uh, basically, uh, you know, and, and all this 
new infrastructure basically outlining goals to reduce our carbon emissions and also tackle the issue of climate justice. Um, and I honestly, to be honest with you, I think a lot of the things that are outlined in the Green New Deal um, are things that we also need in Hawaii, particularly a, a, job, a, a housing guarantee. Hmm. Um, you know, let, let's look, let's imagine there's a big storm, right? Big storm comes onto the islands. Um, it, it, a lot of the people in, in homes will be fine because they have a roof over their head. What about the people on the streets? Right. right. The people on the streets that are that are sitting in, in t- um, tent camps right now um, in, in housing encampments, uh, you know, their homes are literally going to be ripped apart because their homes are made out of canvas. Um, and when we think about climate justice and we think about equity, we also have to ensure that the people that are being affected, people that are most affected by the decisions that we are making right now as a government um, you know, we have to ensure that they're also being kept safe because even if we reduced all of our carbon emissions to zero tomorrow, um, we're still going to get increased, uh, you know, we're, we're still going to get stronger hurricanes. They're still going to happen more often than before, right? And so we need to ensure that everybody has a roof over their head, everybody's food to eat, um, and that everybody has the health care they need uh, to stay healthy. Mm. And that's super interesting because, again, you're bringing equity into the climate change discussion. And that's that sort of multidisciplinary approach to thinking. Um, And it's a social justice issue as well. And I actually want to come back to that a little bit later. I have a specific question about that. Um, We'll come back to that. Hey, everybody, stay with us. After this short break, we will come back with more questions for Kavika Kekua Pegram. Stay with us. This is Guy Kawasaki. If you want to learn how to be a remarkable person, please check out my podcast, Remarkable People. I interview people like Roy Yamaguchi, Margaret Atwood, Jane Goodall, Stephen Wolfram, Stephen Pinker, Ariana Huffington, and Steve Wozniak. The point of the podcast is to help you become a little bit more remarkable. To learn more, go to remarkablepeople.com. Thank you. Hawaii's business people and professionals want to support our public high school students across the state, like me, Law Yagovich, a senior at Kuku High School. And Hawaii's teachers and other educators want classroom speakers, curriculum advice, contest judges, mentors, and other support from businesses and nonprofits. The Climb High Bridge is Hawaii Department of Education's official platform to connect the two communities. It's like Match.com, specifically designed to connect businesses and schools. Learn more by sending an email to info at climbhigh.org. That's spelled C-L-I-M-B-H-I dot org. Hi, friends. Toy Hirschman here from the EntreEd Talk podcast. I am super excited to support the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast hosted by none other than the amazing Josh Rapoon. And I also want to give a big shout out to all of the incredible educators in Hawaii who are doing unreal things in the entrepreneurship and design-based thinking spaces. I hope you all subscribe and listen to What School Could Be in Hawaii. And also, hey, why not check out the EntreEd Talk podcast where we interview stellar entrepreneurial educators and entrepreneurs from across the country and globe. I cannot wait to connect with you. 
Farmers Insurance Hawaii and the Public Schools of Hawaii Foundation are excited to announce the winners of the Education Innovation Teacher Challenge. Tyler Gage of Chiefas Kamakahele Middle School and Wesley Atkins of James Campbell High School are this year's winners, each receiving a $25,000 grant to implement their innovative learning programs. We look forward to seeing their ideas come to life. Farmers Hawaii sends a big mahalo to all teachers for the work they do that extends far beyond the classroom walls. To learn more, visit FarmersHawaii.com slash Education Innovation. Hey everyone, my name is Josh Rapoon and this is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. Today we are with Kavika Kekoa Pegram, a graduate of the Waipahu High School, now studying at American University. So Kavika, um, let's say, and, and, and I'm sorry, like this is one of those crazy hypothetical questions, but let's say I've gathered 50 kids from across public, private, and charter schools here in Hawaii to hear you talk about the skills, habits, and dispositions of an organizer activist. And let's also say um, you don't just want to deliver a message to these kids, you also want to give them real first steps to take, real tools to use. And then finally, one more element to this, let's say you are running for Congress and you want their votes. So I know that's crazy, but what will you tell them? Um, man, that's a real hypothetical because uh, I would never use my advocacy as a means to getting elected. Um, yeah, just as a principal thing, I just don't think community organizers um, should be like intentionally using their community. Anyways, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, man, uh, so there's, there's a few parts to that. There's the part about advice for organizing, yeah. um, what organizing is like, and then there's also what would I say to get myself elected. Mm -hmm. um, and for the elected parts, I just say everything they want to hear um, and then not do any of it once I'm actually in office. <laughs> um, <laughs> Fair point. Yeah, I'll be like, no, no more school, no more homework. Um, you know what? We're doing a, a self-study routine where all you do is you think about what you want to do, never do it, and you get an A. It's all good. Mm -hmm. um, and also um, free rent assistance if your family needs it. Anyways, um, the... For organizing, it, it's a little it's a little difficult because every um, there's so many aspects to it. There's you know curating, there's electoral campaigning where you're curating um, a mini movement basically to get your guy elected, or girl elected, or non-binary pal elected, and um, then there's also uh, issue-based campaigning, uh, legislative campaigning. You know. Uh, there's a lot of different aspects and I'd say the first thing if you really wanted to get into it and you just want to dip your toe in the water um, the first thing that I would do is you know intern with a nonprofit, um, especially you know obviously nonprofits like the Sierra Club um, or uh, it, you know speaking specifically Blue Planet Foundation has a climate crew program um, that they just came out with and this program is really cool because you learn how to um uh, you learn about climate change, which is 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 in its in and of itself extremely valuable. Mm -hmm. um, but you also give a presentation to a neighborhood board, and and that's one of the big things of of, of advocacy, is advocating for the issue you care about. Um, and in this case, doing it in front of your neighborhood board, which makes a lot of the decisions in your community. 
um, that would be a really good uh, uh, first step. Um, and Blue Planet will give you the, the help that you need to get that done. Um, but advocacy is, as a whole is, is really important because all of the, and, and you know, that's just the first step, but in the large scale advocacy and organizing and activism, you know, that's where you got most of the rights that you enjoy today. Mm. Um, free speech was limited to a very particular set of people for a really long time um, until it was expanded. Uh, your vote, your right to vote was for probably a lot of the people listening to this podcast uh, didn't belong to you when the country was founded. Um, you know, uh, your ability to enter the, the bathroom with a person of color or a white person also didn't necessarily belong to you um, <laughs> up until just, you know, 60 yeah. years ago. Right. Um, right. And so, you know, activism can, and, and especially organizing, especially organizing um, can, can be a means uh, for doing a lot of good for a lot of people. Um, and if the first step you need to do is just give a presentation to your neighborhood board, you should absolutely do it. Mm, mm. Um, but it also wasn't with the help of people that were elected to get that done. Um, it wouldn't be law if it weren't for the representatives in Congress that introduced the bill or, um, or that, you know, voted on the bill. And you want people that have morals, that have a good understanding of, of equity and, 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 um, and the issues in your community. And that's why you should vote for me. Mm -hmm. Uh, Kavika Pagan for Congress. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. <laughs> like the way I just slipped that in there. <laughs> yeah, that was perfect. Right. But, but your point is a really important one, which is that there, there are laws and those laws have been created over, over hundreds of years. And an understanding of how that system works is very important as you go into the process of organizing and being an activist, right? I mean, you have to, you got to understand the structures within which you're working. So in addition to curation and communication and advocacy, part of it is actually a knowledge base that you have to amass about how things work. Absolutely. Um, and, 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 you know, going back to Blue Planet, that's what's really cool too, is because they also teach you about climate change and they give you those, yeah. uh, that knowledge base uh, to expand your skill set. Right. Um, and yeah, for sure. I mean, you never want to go into an issue that you don't know enough about. Um, and I, I have certainly been burned a lot of times <laughs> yeah. by doing just that. Um, and, and, you know, you learn your lesson and, and it's yeah. important to, to, to do your reading before you get yeah. on stage and all that. Yeah, it's one of the things, Kavika, that I've said to myself over and over again these past five years that I've been really active in education. I, I say it in my brain a lot. I've said it publicly. Josh, don't be stupid and naive. Um, it's just sort of a cautionary note that I deliver to myself often uh, because there are things that I still don't understand about how systems and education work. And I'm, I'm working on it, but it's still, you know, your point is an important one. Um, so I want to I come at this again from a slightly different angle in terms of organizing and, and being active and an uh, activist in the community. So Kavika, I spent some time in your Twitter feed um, looking at your tweets and retweets. Oh, no. <laughs> and, you know, here's my question. I, it might be kind of an odd one, but Twitter can be a rough and chaotic place where thoughts are expressed in some pretty raw ways. And I think my question has to do with these kids that you've got sitting in front of you. We're still on that hypothetical and you're speaking to them. You know, what is the what is the social and emotional well-being that has to be in place when you're in an environment like Twitter, or Instagram, where things can get very emotional or very raw? 
Yikes. I don't even know. Um, <laughs> is it just sort of like uh, a, I, I like can't a log Teflon? Off, um, is, it, is it like a Teflon? You, you, do you have to develop sort of a Teflon or a thick skin or, you know what? Yeah. What, yeah. Well, you know, Twitter is fun. It's a fun place to get attacked. Um, I personally <laughs> have been, uh, I personally have been uh, outed, like name dropped by the Hawaii Republican Party on Twitter, like their official Twitter account, like named me as a person who's extolling Marxist literature. Wow. Yeah. And that was fun. Um, but also at the same time, um, maybe not so cool because, um, you know, I, was, I think I was 18 at the time and they're attacking an 18 year old. This is like an old, you know, white man who has white hair and his beard and his hair mm. um, attacking teenagers on Twitter <laughs> for extolling <laughs> Marxist literature. It's just um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, there you definitely don't want to take everything that you read on that website seriously because a lot of it is people um kind of i think the side of twitter that i'm on the political you know honestly the, the marxist side of twitter it's a lot of people that are really frustrated with um the material conditions they live in it's a lot of people frustrated with the system that we have to work within it's a lot of people i'm sorry for the noise can you hear that yeah, yeah just a little bit but that's okay it's fine Okay. Uh, sorry. Um, it, welcome to pandemic uh, podcasting. Yes, of um, course. It's a lot of people existing in a space where they're maybe not necessarily the happiest that they know they could be. Mm. Um, and, and they're, they're exasperating that, that exhaustion on Twitter. Mm. Um, and, and so, you know, a lot of the anger and a lot of the, the things that you see on Twitter, maybe not necessarily directed at you. Mm. Um, and I think kind of having that understanding um, that, you know, people are angry, uh, not at you, but at, at the overarching larger things, um, really helps you to kind of understand their perspective when they're tweeting mm. um, and being, being empathetic towards that. Uh, but also at the same time, Twitter is also, we can be anonymous and a lot of people will say things that um, maybe directed at you that actually are um, not, not the best things to hear. Mm. Um, and at the end of the day, I mean, it's got to get over it. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. It I'm, takes it takes five seconds to read a tweet, and you have twenty four hours in a day. Are you going to be hung up over those five seconds? Oh wow, that's super interesting. Wow, that's a really interesting thought. I, I think you know, for us adults and education, the teachers, the 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 educators, the education leaders, Kavika, we, it's it's a natural instinct to want to protect and keep safe our students, which is totally awesome, right? But at the same time, if we do that to the nth degree, we never give them an opportunity to be in a moment like that where you're facing something, some sort of anger or, or some kind of comment or something. You know, it's, it's just it's the same as kids can't be decision makers unless we actually make them make decisions as students. Uh, you have to train people. And so I think about that a lot, you know, like how do we how do we make it possible for kids to experience some of these things while still keeping them safe, you know, as you're preparing them for life. And and maybe maybe Kavika in this case I'm being stupid and naive because kids are out there on the social media platforms probably to a certain extent laughing at adults who are worried about them. Um but then I also don't necessarily believe that either. There's too much anxiety and and stress out there for kids. So I don't know. I'm just kind of mixed up about it. Not sure what to think at this point. Yeah. Um, and you know, there is a role that teachers can play in, in ensuring that kids are being kept safe in social media and, and, and all that. And that, 
um, comes into actually, I was listening to one of your podcasts on, um, I forget who it was with, but it was about how middle school, it was like one of those quick kind things. Yeah. Um, Chris and it was mm-hmm. middle school. Yeah. And, and how that is one of the most developmental portions of your life. And that's where you learn to cope. That's where you learn to social that, you know, you learn about social, um, socializing. That's when you learn how to be successful in school. Right. Um, and I think there needs to be an honest and frank conversation about the state of social media and how that's going to affect them as they go into, um, as they go into high school and they go into the professional life and, and what that, what that's like. Um, oh man, <laughs> social media in middle school, especially, I mean, is, is rough on its own. Yeah. Um, and I think going into it, maybe not necessarily with the things that I have been raised with, um, you know, that social media is bad. Um, you know, you should always be nice on social media. You know, mm-hmm. those don't work because pe- kids are going to be kids. Um, so I, I think, you know, there should be an honest conversation about if you're going to be do this on social media, at least, you know, be safe in X, Y, and Z way. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, um, I have another follow-up question to that, and it has to do with this documentary film that's been out for a few weeks now called The Social Dilemma. Um, not sure if you've seen it, but um, it's on Netflix right now. And, and basically the premise of the documentary, it can be very frightening to watch, is that you know the social media platforms are really working hard with their algorithms um, and their machine learning to figure out how to get people to track towards particular bits of information based on their on their likes. Um, and I think that's another area of concern right now. And you've already alluded to it with regard to the election and misinformation and things like that. So, like, what are your, what are your thoughts about right now about t- social media as a tool for good and as a as a potentially a tool for evil? With keeping in mind that w- there was a moment there a while back, you know, during the the Green Revolution in Iran and some of the other great moments with Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and other social media platforms that now they seem to be under attack because they're so filled with disinformation. Like, where's your head at about all of this right now? Yeah, I mean, you know, I have mixed feelings about it, to be honest, because um, I, I would not be able to count the amount of ways that social media has helped. Um, yeah. Yes, the Green Revolution, but also uh, the climate strikes, you know, globally. Right. I wouldn't be able to count the ways that it, it's helped counterattack some of the disinformation that Trump has put out on Twitter. Um, but at the same time, you know, are, are these good things about social media good because they combat an inequality or a problem that was already there? Or is it because they're combating themselves? Um, like problems that social media itself has created. Right. Um, and, and so that's what I'm trying to figure out. Is it the chicken or the egg? Yeah. <laughs> right. um, but, you know, I, I do think that the benefits of the freedom of the Internet far outweigh the, 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 the bad parts about it. Um, because the, do I think that the algorithm that has perpetuated, you know, this idea, um, or that perpetuates your own, um, self-interest and, and, you know, further digs you down a hole that gets harder and harder to dig out of or to climb out of. Uh, no, that's not good. Um, and especially, you know, with, in, in, in the context of QAnon, um, and, and how that's taking off right now. Yeah. Um, and also in in perpetuating you know these 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 talking points, especially especially in politics, you know having canvassed over five hundred doors in in Reno, um, in in one week, you hear a lot of the a lot of those talking points that you know are factually false, but still kept getting repeated among regular mm-hmm. folk who who don't have the opportunity to to look up what the actual truth is. Um, that 
that is dangerous. Um, and that, that it gets extremely, um, that, that can be, that can lead to, to, to things that can actually really affect the outcome, um, or the, the state of, of where we are as, as people, um, mm -hmm. you know, as broadly as possible. Uh, hmm. So, yeah, I mean, you know, if my pauses and my things run off, I'm really conflicted on this. Um, yeah. And I really haven't found a solution for myself. It's just. Yeah. So, so question for you then. So, and I, I, I'm asking because I never thought about this. This is a, just a phenomenally interesting thought that as a canvasser going, knocking on doors, going door to door, you know, what is the degree of difficulty when you're talking to somebody who's saying things to you that are factually inaccurate or not at all true? Like what, what happens, Kavika, in the head and the heart in moments like that when you're standing at that front door? That must be very difficult. Well, you know, to you have to think about it also in this way. I come off to them as extremely biased yeah. because I am purposefully campaigning in favor of Joe Biden. So obviously whatever they say that is negative towards Joe Biden, um, whatever I say is, is, yeah. is going to be false to them immediately. Mm -hmm. Right. So at, at, at the get go, there's really not a lot I can do um, except for try my best to plead to them about what the reality is and to give them an avenue for searching that out on their own. Mm. Um, you know, for example, I ran into, um, one of the best moments I had was when I talked to two young voters. One was a, was a young mom, um, probably, probably teenage mother and, and her, her friend. Um, and you know, I was like, does anybody live in this household? Um, because they didn't answer the door. They were right outside. And they're like, oh, that's not us. Sorry. And then we get to get talking about them and they're non-voters. They'd never voted. They didn't want to vote. And they're, they're talking about these points like, you know, Joe Biden, I don't want to vote for him. He's going to take my guns away. Um, uh, I don't want to get taxed. You know, all these all these things. Well, you know, Donald Trump has been putting in tax policy and he has a tax policy that's going to come out in 2020. That's set to, you know, become a thing in 2021. That's actually going to raise taxes in, in your income bracket. Joe Biden has pledged that he's not going to raise taxes on anybody. Um, that makes us in $400,000. You know, uh, so a lot of these a lot of these 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 fear mongering talking points um, that have been perpetuated by the right wing, mm -hmm. um, you do get you do get a little frustrated. I'd say more than more than scared, um, because it mm. it becomes really apparent how effective they are at skewing these talking points, mm. Um, mm -hmm. and and so that gets a little scary uh, because then you start thinking about. Um, you know, wow, if they're this effective at this, you know, what could they do with, with something maybe more important to human life than just tax policy? Yeah, right, right. Wow, that's just, that's so interesting. Um, okay, so a couple more questions for you today, Kavika. I really appreciate this time. Um, this question has to do with student activists of color. This is something I just found completely fascinating as I was preparing for today. Um, I want to talk about models of organization. Um, I'm going to read a paragraph from an article you posted on your LinkedIn page. Um, I think it was in Yes magazine online. Um, so the quote is, across the country, the students leading the climate strike have connections with activist groups like Zero Hour, Extinction Rebellion, 
um, march for our lives. But the organizing model the team uses is deliberately independent of any single organization and horizontal. It builds on the momentum of the increasingly black and brown leadership behind the Green New Deal, driven by organizations like Justice Democrats and the youth-led Sunrise Movement. So Kavika, my question is, what is this horizontal model that is independent of any single organization? And then I'll have a follow-up after that. Yeah, so, um, you know, to be honest with you, it started off as a horizontal organizing um, kind of coalition, and it, it's, it's later actually become a lot more vertical, um, just by means of the horizontal organizing um, it, it, this is going to be controversial to people that are actually in this space, but mm -hmm. horizontal organizing doesn't work long-term effectively. Um, that's because there'd be no um, unified leadership. Uh, if there's no unified leadership, there's no unified messaging. If there's no unified messaging, you're not getting anything done. Mm. Um, and people are going to disagree with that, but I, you know, that's been my experience and, and that's what I, I hold to be true. Um, but it originally started off as, as horizontal organizing because it was really just a lot of people that wanted to do an event that wanted to do this March 15th event, um, this 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 first time protest um, all around the world. And they were basically kind of operating independently of each other, just getting this done, getting this event done um, without any real leadership nationally or internationally. Um, and that uh, and that that's how it was for the first event. Um, and then after that, we kind of decided, hey, let's you know, let's make this a real thing. Let's have a unified message. Let's advocate for real, um, you know, real legislative uh, priorities and let's do X, Y, and Z. And so we became an organization, the USU Climate Strike. Um, and we just went off from there. And so, so that horizontal model then is a shared leadership model, meaning every everybody is working essentially towards the same goal but you're you're doing it from a shared perspective essentially yeah and it, it does a lot of good things for representation which is where i think you're going with the uh with the question mm -hmm. um because it ensures that you know within the confines of, of how the power structure would work for an organization um like usc stamina strike or you know like march for our lives or like Sunrise Movement, um, that the leadership isn't all, you know, white people or isn't all privileged folk, um, right. and that it is being equally shared by marginalized people of color, black and indigenous uh, people of color as well. Mm -hmm. um, black and indigenous people, sorry, they already are people of color, yeah. but black and indigenous people, um, and that they, they share that same leadership that that privileged white person also does. Yeah. So has. And I'm, I'm, I'm super interested again, and in, you know, our schools for 130, 150 years have been essentially a vertical model where you, you move your way up through elementary, middle and high school and you, it, you're, you're essentially climbing a ladder. It's a vertical model, but you know, to what extent are kids going to be prepared to work in these kinds of marvelous horizontal arrangements of shared leadership if they have not, you know, that's something that's been on my mind as well. So, so follow up question then you know talk to us about how 
uh, I love this thought, you know, about how activists from LGBTQ, gender equality, and gun violence protection movements are coming into the climate change movement. Like, what does that mean? What do they bring to discussions of climate change? How do they see climate change as having a shared language, if you will, with social justice issues? Yeah, well, you know, I can't, I can't speak for them. Um, but uh, what, I, what I can share is, uh, you know, it goes into our earlier conversation about climate change affects everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, particularly uh, marginalized groups, because these are the groups that tend to actually emit less carbon into the atmosphere, um, but get uh, most of the effects from climate change. Mm. You know, like, for example, um, let, let's talk about black and brown communities um, in Hawaii. On Oahu, the last remaining coal plant isn't in um, isn't in Mililani. It's not in Hawaii. It's not in Kailua. Uh, it's on the west side of the island, um, right by Campbell, um, in in Kapolei. And you know, this is the last remaining coal plant. Um, all the toxic ashes that are that are from this coal plant get dumped into um, a PVT landfill in Nanakuli. Mm. Um, this this landfill is right next to a school, and these toxic these toxic coal ashes, one have been proven to cause cancer, um, uh, two they cause respiratory issues, and they're right next to a school. Now Nanakuli, the west side, you know, all, all, this entire area is all, um, how do you say it? Forty nine point seven, forty nine point five percent. Native Hawaiian or Pacific Islander, mm-hmm. um, when the entire city and county of Honolulu in and of itself is only about nine or 10% Hawaiian or Pacific Islander. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, you have this huge community of, of brown and indigenous folk um, that are being adversely affected uh, by the production of fossil fuels, um, even though they only comprise such a small minority of the actual total population in, in the county. Um, and so, you know, what, and and so that's where that fits in. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and gun rights activists, you know, these, these are people, these are just regular people from all walks of life. They're brown people, they're black people, they're white people. Um, and so to the same extent that their communities are affected by gun violence, you know, you have black and brown communities in Chicago, you know, these are the same communities that are also affected by climate change. Mm. Um, and a lot of the climate injustice that you see, Mm. uh, and so, you know, I think that they have just as much of, of a space in, in this fight as they do in, in, in gun violence. Too. Yeah, that's super interesting. You know, Kavika, part of the reason why I'm feeling very hopeful in this moment um, is because of, you know, the kind of work that you're doing and the, the kinds of work that you're describing here um, that's very inclusive and it's very diverse. I did one episode with Dr. Helen Turner, who's the vice president. Uh, president for strategy and innovation at Chaminade University. And her work very much centers around bringing indigenous peoples into the fields of science and data science. And what happens to the field of science when you do have all of these people coming into these fields and doing research, all of a sudden it's no longer a field dominated by white Caucasian men, which it has been for hundreds of years. Now it's got all kinds of research going on in all different kinds of areas. And I'm, I feel... I. 
I feel encouraged. I feel like maybe there is intelligent life on this planet because people like Helen are doing that kind of work. And you can see where my interest lies in terms of education, right? Like what are, where do, what are kids going to focus on? What are the problems that they're going to find? And what are the solutions that they're going to get after? For sure. Nice rounding off with the, uh, <laughs> nice rounding off with the intelligent life part. Yeah. Yeah. Coming back to the beginning. Um, yeah. so Kavika, here's, here's the last question for today. I generally picked up or very strongly picked up in, in my preparation for this interview, um, how much you care about journalism and, um, you have some experience in journalism through your work as a student at Waipahu high school. So here's the big question. Um, and feel free to describe your work at Waipahu as part of, you know, your response to these questions. But what is your take on the state of journalism and news in the United States right, right now? Like, what are we doing right, Kavika? What are we doing wrong? And in, in what ways is our fourth estate in trouble? In what ways is the fourth estate succeeding? Yeah, well, you know, your local... I can always say, yeah, well, you know, every, every time I respond to the question. Uh, but y your local your local news station is an affiliate of a massive national company. Mm. Um, KHON2 is an affiliate of Fox, I believe. Right. Um, and, and so, you know, I what worries me most about journalism is what is happening to our local journalism. Because, you know, uh, you talked about the Green Revolution, right? And how that was perpetuated on social media. Um, you know... I, I, I don't like to think about it, but I think about it often is, you know, what are the local issues that are happening in communities right now that could make national headlines, but aren't because there's nobody in that community to report on it. Hmm. Um, which again, social media can take up, but social media doesn't have any of the um, safety precautions, infrastructure, story verification processes um, that journalists do. And this is actually where I think high school journalism can fill that spot and can take it to where it's never been before. Mm -hmm. Um one, because high school journalism doesn't have to worry about funding for the most part, um, depending on the school, right? And so they don't have to worry about running a story that maybe may lose funding. The problem with that, with this, though, is that not a lot of states um, have First Amendment protections for student journalists that other states do. Um, so let, let's say, for example, um, well, just to give more explanation to that, student journalists in Hawaii aren't given first amendment protections that adult adult you know quotation mark journalists are given which means that um the, the school administration can censor any story um without really without any rhyme or reason mm -hmm. um uh that that a student writes um and so what always has been censored i've heard of other students that have been censored on, on the continent people have been censored and, and so what this does is, is, you know, where there is now a need for local journalism that Hawaii or that local students, um, local high schools can, can fill perfectly um, in their, you know, reporting on issues in their community can't do that now because they don't have that freedom to do so. And so we tried to pass a bill for the past couple, past three years um, of the state legislature called the New Voices Bill. Now, New Voices is a national initiative, and this initiative can actually, um, actually restore those rights that were actually student journalists did have in um because of tinker versus des moines mm -hmm. um but a case in, in the 1980s actually shifted away from them um so it, it would restore basically the same rights uh same first amendment protections to student journalists that they previously did have and we're going through each state to do it i believe 15 states have passed uh, this new voices bill wow um and and we're trying to get hawaii on it as well mm -hmm. yeah and, and so i think that the state of of journalism can be largely helped 
by having high school students take up this super important um, role in our society. And let's say that I was a student sparked by what you just said, and I wanted to get involved. Like, where are the focal points of making the case here in Hawaii to be able to do that? Like, who has to be talked to? Who has to be convinced? What has to happen? Yeah, so there are a few um, there are a few uh, powers that be that kind of have decided where this bill is going or where it's not going. Obviously, the state legislature is one. Uh, the education committees on, on both mm-hmm. on both houses of, of the legislature, the Senate and the House of Representatives, um, and the Board of Education and the Department of Education play large roles in this as well, uh, because it, it, the bill would, would largely affect them. Um, and so they haven't been providing um, uh, they haven't been providing anything against us, but they've been providing a lot of comments um, in, in, in private meetings. They can say whatever they want. Um, uh, and so these are the kind of people that, that we really need to really plead to and we need to make our, our case heard for them. Um, and, and there's an organization um, run by a local high school teacher, Cindy Reeves, at McKinley High School, mm. um, that's really been kind of the the catalyst for all of this necessary change that needs to happen in our community. Um, and, and, and so Cindy Reeves runs her own organization called uh, the High School Journalism Association. Mm. Um and, and so I think that if you want to get involved and you're listening to this podcast, I would highly recommend uh, you reach out to her um, and I can include her, her website. Yeah, in the show notes. Yeah, we can put those in the show notes. That's great. Um, so, Kavika, actually, I lied. I have one more question for you. Sure. Um, I, I, it's, this has been such a marvelous conversation. I'm just curious, um, because you are at American University, but not physically mm-hmm. at American University, right? Um, and so what is it like right now for you to be a college student in the time of a pandemic? And what are your, your goals and aspirations for the time that you will spend as part of American University's, um, you know, process and system? Yeah, um, well, I, I, I applied to American, one, because of the major that I'm in right now, which is an interdisciplinary study of communications, legal principles, economics, and government, kind of all in one. Wow. Um, and I also picked it because it's in D.C. Yeah. And the state of Hawaii has such a huge dependence on federal investment, um, but it hasn't, uh, we don't really have, I, I think, a lot of youth representation um, in D.C. to kind of advocate for the issues that we really care about that the federal government can have play a big role in. Um, and so, you know, I, I wanted to go to DC, uh, because I think that that's kind of some place where I could, you know, have a tangible difference, um, that I could kind of do something there. Uh, I don't know what yet. I don't know what specifically. Um, but the other part is that DC is, is kind of like the, um, you know, beyond the school, DC is kind of the heart of, it is the heart of the country. Um, and I've never been, I've never been anywhere near the East coast, but it's just, it, it was someplace that I always aspired to be in. Mm-hmm. Um, I now aspire, you know, having after my application process and, and going through all this stuff, I've, I've realized that Hawaii is my homeland and <laughs> this is kind of where I want to stay for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, but DC would be a really cool learning opportunity to learn from the country's leaders and, um, both in the nonprofit and government sector, um, and just be able to to model that and bring that back home. You know all the good parts about it, and change all the bad parts out. 
Mm. And have you, Kavika, have you sort of become aware, sorry, this is a little rhetorical, but become aware that you are, you're, you're straddling both worlds. You are in DC because you are an American university student. You just happen to be working remotely from Hawaii, studying remotely. Like, how, how is that playing out in your mind? Um, well, it, it's different um, because I think we, in national conversations, and you know, I think my time in Nevada has been kind of representative of that in, in looking at how politics works out. It's, they talk about identities so strictly mm-hmm. uh, nationally, you know. Um, in D.C. and in all these spaces, they talk about the Hispanic vote. They talk about uh, the Asian vote. They talk about the white vote. Um, and, you know, that that is true here as well in Hawaii. But I also think we have such a deeper connection to the identities in our community mm. um, that we know, like, not every race is a monolith. Um, and, um, and I think we talk about the people here with more compassion than we do uh, there. Um and that's, that's been reflected in my classes. It's been reflected in, in the campaign work I was doing. And I think that, um, that that's really what, what the struggle has been for me is, you know, how can I just talk about these identities so loosely? Um, but I, you know, there's a place for it, for sure. Um, and I'm just, you know, it's, I don't know what it's like yet to, to be in D.C. Mm-hmm. I, I, I still haven't been there, even though I've been going to school there for yeah. um, four months. But mm. uh, what a phenomenally interesting situation that you're an American university student who has yet to arrive in DC. That's what COVID, that's what COVID did, right? It just made things very painful for a lot of people, but it also made things very interesting um, yeah. because of the ways that it's pushed us. Yeah, but to American University's credit, they made the right decision. Like that was the smartest decision to keep us off from coming to school. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, seeing seeing Ohio State and seeing all these other schools, how they messed up. Yeah. It, 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 I am glad to be home. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was a little shocked yesterday. Uh, you know, the Notre Dame-Clemson game, the football game ended with the students, 15,000 students rushing the field. And as oh, much no. as it was, you know, total jubilation at a win, um, at the same time, it was a total cringeworthy moment when you think about, you know, what, what the consequences of that are. So, yeah, I really hear you about that. Yeah. 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 So Kavika Kekoa Pegram, thank you for this opportunity to talk to you today. Uh, I'm very much inspired by your work and I'm really looking forward to getting this episode up on the podcast platforms. Um, I wish you the best of luck with American University and all the work that you're doing. And um, I think behalf on of everybody, on behalf of everybody, uh, I thank you for the energy that you put into making our community a better place. Thank you. I appreciate it. Have a great day. Okay. Bye. I am super pleased to note that 41 out of 41 listeners have given our podcast a five-star rating. We appreciate this very much. And thank you for the wonderful written reviews. If you love these episodes with remarkable and innovative educators and education leaders, please give us your own rating and write us a review at your favorite podcast store. The What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast is brought to you by Josh Rapoon Productions. Your host is me, Josh Rapoon. My editor, show consultant, and sound engineer is Daniel Galad at DG Sound Creations. Daniel, an amazing musician, created the original theme music heard in these episodes. To learn more about Daniel or to hire him for your next music gig, see our show notes where you will find his email address and Facebook URL. 
This series is funded by Education Change Agent Ted Dintersmith, executive producer of the documentary film Most Likely to Succeed, and author of the best-selling book What School Could Be. Send your feedback to mltsinhawaii at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at mltsinhawaii. Finally, please like our Most Likely to Succeed in Hawaii Facebook page and YouTube channel. Please stay safe, healthy, and physically, but not socially distant. And most of all, in the wake of our national election, bring kindness and compassion into the world. See you soon.